Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, uh, joined today, back after New Year, by Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. And Algie Hall, how are you, Algie? Very good, thank you, John. You thought you'd escaped, didn't you? <laughs> you thought you'd escaped from an interrogation over the tips of 2017. Listen, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready to be interrogated. It's a, it's a pleasure to be interrogated, well, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I, I, I know we were supposed to be back on air last week, but uh, we had a few issues with, uh, with holidays and, and illness. Uh, we are going to talk, as I uh, have alluded to, about the tips of 2017, the tips of the year and also the tips of the week. Interesting year for those. Yes, yeah. As, as I say, you know, it's a pleasure to talk about them. The, the performance wasn't very pleasurable. But we can learn something. We can learn we something, can learn exactly. Something. But before we do that, it's a big week for retail. And that's why you're here, Harriet. Let's talk retail. It's a big month for retail. Big month um, for retail. Yeah, January is obviously uh, just a slug of trading statements, really, detailing how they all did over Christmas. And it's mixed. To say the least, I know that's a really sort of unsatisfactory conclusion that readers, I'm sure, will sort of feel deflated by. But it, but it's the truth. Um, we've had some absolute shockers and then some really solid updates as well. So. But I, I guess what we're going to try and dig into and find out is like why some companies have performed badly and why some companies have performed much more strongly. Yeah. And then that will give us some clues as to where we should invest in UK retail uh, in the year ahead, rather than dumping it all together, which I suspect is what many people would be inclined to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely about drilling down into sort of what had led them to this point, I think. If you look at some of the big casualties, a lot of it is down to the fact that these were companies that were basically already in trouble and sort of fighting double fronts and on the back foot a bit. So, yeah, it's kind of all coming home to roost. Indeed. So, let's, I mean, let's, let's sort of go in order. So, let's start with next which kicked off the January reporting season with a with a trading update, not results, trading update. Yeah, most of them are trading updates. There's a few sort of third quarters. It depends how they all report. But uh, yeah, ne- Next kicked us off and it was much better than people thought. Yeah, because Next, I mean, Next had a bit of a horrible 2017. It's a bit up and down, to say the least. Well, um, most of the first six months were incredibly bad. Um, Next was always doing its thing, which is, you know, they're one of the best for communicating their message to the market. Um, and they don't really shy away, really, from the bad news, which is always encouraging i think but towards the second half of the year um which was more when we had tipped the the recovery potential um things did start to turn around and they they really sort of consolidated that progress over christmas i, I must admit i was very skeptical when when you, you you kind of held firm with your your view that next was okay but it, it kind of turned out to be right yeah well, what, have you, they, what have they done that's, well, that's helped them through what has clearly been a, a difficult christmas trading season i think one of the most pleasing things to see about next which is something that other clothing chains have echoed with their trading statements too is that one of the big strategies was to focus a lot more on full price sales and minimize discounting margins were obviously already massively under pressure from the foreign exchange climate we're in the wage climate that we're in and rates rising and all of this other stuff so they really couldn't take much more downward pressure on their margin um, from promotional pricing and trying to keep up with the competition and so one of the big things that came out of the Christmas trading update was this this has been successful and that customers are willing to pay full price for product um, and that's good to see. Do we know what, what customers are buying from next? I mean, is there any particular area of the business that's been strong? Yeah, home has been particularly strong for them mm-hmm. um, but clothes are doing good too and that's, I think, encouraging to see because obviously the rise of the kind of fast fashion online discounters, I guess, for want of a better word, um, has been a massive threat to them and interestingly, um, this is a point I'm going to make sort of later in the month when we do sort of more in-depth pieces on this but the one thing that Amazon really hasn't got right yet is selling fashion 
And so I think it's one of those um, areas that if you can prove that your quality sits above ASOS and Boohoo and people like that, and is perhaps more for a different demographic than just sort of tween fashion, there is potential to do well, as people like Jules are proving. Yes, they, they had uh, decent numbers. I've got some figures here. Yeah, it was uh, a fairly brief statement, I have to admit. It was pretty much one paragraph long, but sales were up by a fifth over Christmas. Yeah, 20, 19.2% over the seven weeks of the 7th of January. Yeah. Pretty decent. Pretty decent. Is that because they're small? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, it's not dissimilar to what we've seen from some of the motor retailers, actually, to go off at a completely different tangent this morning, which is that the smaller car retailers are doing pretty well. And it's the bigger ones, people like Lookers, for example, who are coming under more pressure. OK. I mean, what we're on the subject of next, I mean, let's talk about the other UK high street bellwether, which is Marks & Spencer, yeah. of course. Not so good. No, it was a big casualty this morning, and it was so bad, actually, that it pretty much managed to drag Tesco down with it, which is not very fair, because Tesco's numbers were okay. Um, they were not quite as um, great as Morrison's, which was earlier this week, mm-hmm. and Sainsbury's, which was yesterday. Um, but basically, the M&S stock fell 6%, and it took Tesco down 4%, and the big thing in the M&S statement was that their food division has gotten even worse. It started to slip in Q1 by 0.1%. Same decline in Q2. That decline accelerated into Q3 into 0.4%. So this is food. Food, yeah. But general merchandising, presumably as bad as ever. <laughs> bad as ever. But the, the crazy thing is, is that investors <laughs> seem to have been completely sort of neutralised to the idea of bad news on general merchandise. They're like, oh, 2.8% down. Oh, well. And now they're like, oh, God, food is going kind of the same way. Well, but- f- food was always the saviour for Marks and Spencer throughout this period of, of, of decline in, in, in general uh, merchandising. Food was always the saviour. And to see food going, I guess that's what people are worried about. Yeah, it's interesting because food, I think, um, you're right, it had been perceived as a as a saviour. But I think what Alge and I were discussing this morning was that M&S has done a lot to sort of buy in its growth on that side of the business. A lot of new openings that very quickly get absorbed into their like-for-like sales measure. Those stores then sort of hit maturity and suddenly the whole thing starts to sort of slide backwards again. Mm. Um, so both, you know, the analysts and and us here at the IC, we suspect that in the next quarter or so, certainly before the results at the end of the year, we might get some news from M&S that they're going to start curtailing their expansion plans on M&S food, which has kind of been the only growth engine left in that business um, that isn't in some sort of recovery mode. So, yeah, that would be bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, turning to my favourite investment methodology of scuttlebutt, uh, Marks and Spencer is where we do our top-up shopping. And, you know, there's a lot There's a lot of goods going unsold by the looks of things, a lot of discounting on a Saturday morning. You well, know. so this is one of the things they discussed heavily in this morning's statement was um, I actually expected the food numbers to not be as bad. And the reason I didn't think that would happen is because everything we had from the supermarkets this week was this definite trend of people trading up. The premium ranges have recorded like record sales over Christmas. At Marks & Spencer? No, at Morrison's, Sainsbury's and Tesco. Mm. All of them reported the same trend. So I thought, well... Maybe we're in that climate of, you know, your budgets are under pressure and you're feeling a bit down about the political environment or whatever. So you splash out a bit at Christmas on, on some nice food, in which case you, you could make the argument that M&S is well placed to deliver that sort of feeling. 
However, um, I think it was Emma Powell this morning makes a great point, which is that premium Christmas pudding at Tesco is still a darn sight cheaper than a premium Christmas pudding from Marks and Spencer. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I have to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going really off off piece and on the scuttlebutt road here. You know, I profiteroles. <laughs> I bought a very expensive profiterole dessert from Marks and Spencer. It was tasteless and horrible. Uh, and I bought uh, a sort of reasonably expensive, but not quite as expensive, profiterole dessert from Sainsbury's in not a premium range. It was much, much nicer. Yeah. And I, I just worry, you know, what I see of, of, of M&S food offering is that, yeah, it's expensive, but the quality's being, you know, if anything, you know, being as generous as I can possibly be. Other companies, other supermarkets are catching up. Yeah. And the big thing that was in this morning's statement to sort of round that all off was that before Christmas Day, which you know things are bad when they're doing it before Christmas Day, they had to slash prices on their on their food. They refer to price investment, read price cuts. Yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced. I'm not yeah. convinced. I, I, I really do think something's going a, a little bit skew with that. Something's going very, very wrong. And it's it's really difficult to put my finger on it because what was also missing from this morning's statement was any kind of strategic, like, this is what's happening and we realise this is bad, so this is what we're going to do about it. There was none of that sort of overtone in the entire thing. And uh, and it's worrying because Steve Rowe, of course, was in charge of M&S Food for so long and really hailed as, as, as the sort of brainchild of keeping that division alive through the recession. You know, the whole dine-in for £10 was, was his idea. So the fact that he's now sort of been elevated into managing the whole thing. I, I, actually, I'll tell you what, this brings me on to another interesting uh, subject, cauliflower steaks. <laughs> yes, £2 cauliflower steaks. I thought they were £2.50. The point being, uh, Mark Spencers have, have obviously been selling this sliced cauliflower <laughs> as a steak for £2.50. Um, what what the, you know, the real issue there, I think, is that is around packaging. People are worried about buying this stuff that's essentially been sliced up, put in a lot of packaging, and, and people are getting you know the hump about that. The, the, the carrier bag charge has been uh, extended to all stores yep. as of today. Yeah. Um, Marks and Spencers, you know, the dine-in for a tenner, a lot of that is packaged food, pre, you yeah. know, uh, ready meals, etc., etc. It, um, it sounds flippant. That's but what I, they do. Yeah, I think the environmental issues actually are going to be a big deal this year. We're already talking about the coffee cup levy. Did you see that this morning yeah. on latte levies? I've seen, I've seen with, Michael go with his little green, you know, yeah, reusable exactly. coffee cup. Um, and we're talking about plastic bottles now and, and the BPA, whatever is in them, and people getting very up in arms about that. So, yeah, the supermarkets could face yet another round of kind of regulatory upheaval on that front. Absolutely. But but what I, my observation is that Marks and Spencer is the worst yeah. for packaging, yeah. you know, because because what it's done is build a business around ready wheels. Yeah. And interestingly, I think what's um, another thing that I was talking about this morning with, with some of the guys upstairs was that I think what they've kind of taken their eye off the ball on weirdly is food to go which if you look at someone like Greg's I mean that's obviously their entire business model and it's proving massively popular if you look at the ranges in M&S um a lot of those do get updated. They come out with new things. There's a big sort of American section that they have now with sort of Americanized food and all of that sort of stuff. But if you look at the sort of standard like sandwiches and drinks and stuff that people get for lunch, like that's, that just looks really old fashioned to me now. And the health conscious amongst us millennial shoppers, um, I don't think they're going to put up with it for much longer. Million dollar question. What should we do with the shares? Well, I haven't really decided yet. That's Ooh, the thing. Come I know. on, Harriet. That's going to be bad for the leaders. Come on. Well, no, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. The M&S stock is a massive income play. And if you look at their cash position, it's pretty good. They do squeeze a lot of cash out of that business. So you could argue that the dividend looks pretty secure. And why wouldn't you bother to just hang on to it for the next 12 months, see what happens? I don't think it's going to go bust in the next year. So Yeah, yeah. 
No, it's not going to go bust. You know? But but you know, but by its a, a, growth, a, div- a dividend, uh, you know, of five or six percent is not that attractive when you're losing six or seven percent a year on the shares. Yeah, it's uh, you play one off against the other, I suppose. The the thing is, I just to build an argument around buying the shares for growth is pretty impossible at the moment. So, so it's only for income. Yeah, and we just have to keep an eye on whether that It'll income probably, is secure. At the moment, it's still a buy tip. I'll probably move that back to hold and just say, hang on for the income, but don't go buying it on a recovery re-rating basis. So, so, I mean, what I would say, a number, of, a number of retailers that we look at have, you know, are looking attractive on a on an income basis. Debenhams, mm-hmm. Card Factory, mm-hmm. both of them have had shockers. Yeah. I mean, Card Factory in particular, I said in last November that the special dividend was going to come under massive threat there. And this morning, they've basically confirmed as such um, and the analysts at Investec have said the same thing so the 16% fall in the share price I feel you know fairly vindicated that we weren't telling people to buy it up until today um, yeah that was, that was really bad I mean Card Factory should be doing amazingly well over Christmas and if you'd looked at the research from people like Peel Hunt um, they'd really been fighting their corner saying that they were a market leader you've got people like Clinton's obviously going bust and stuff like that so well, Clinton's is still around I mean, it's, it's still around but they've had to you know 75% of that business doesn't exist anymore mm. um, you know it's been massively reduced so the argument was that Card Factory was well positioned to kind of mop up all of that stuff but I don't know. It's just buy cards anywhere, though. Yeah, and the thing is that I think the millennial taste is diff- to not send Christmas cards. Yeah, I would assume. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a massive discussion round round my family dinner table this year. Was my mum is is outraged that neither me or my sister send Christmas cards to anybody. Well, I'm outraged on her behalf because <laughs> I, I, I think you should at least send the Christmas cards to your parents. Oh no! Obviously, I get my family Christmas cards to go with their presents. <laughs> But I don't bother to send one to her address when I'm going to see her in five days. Like, I just don't get that at all. And no way am I sending them to people. Like, my mum gets cards from people she hasn't spoken to in 10 years. It's ridiculous. It's just that one time a year when you make a little connection to remind people you're still there. I'm still alive. (laughs) To me, John, you're hurting the environment. You're hurting the environment. You're doing doing well for the the shareholders of the Royal Mail. (laughs) Let's not get on to the Let's get on to that. Uh, okay, but Debenham, I mean, let's talk Debenham seriously. Yeah. Uh, Debenham's another... The, the dividend is still there today. This must be one that people are genuinely very worried about. Yeah. Um, Debenham's and Mothercare are my two big concerns now for this year. Um, I had tried very hard to stick with the Debenham's recovery potential. They had a big management change. They had a very solid Christmas last year that was based a lot around click and collect. And there were sort of signs that that business could could come back from the brink. And it's just absolutely started to implode again. Because um, the online growth was weak. Yeah. When you when you compare it to some of the, the, when you the, the guys that, that are the sort of newer retailers that... That, that are well they have less of an sort of an established store base yeah. so someone like super dry yeah good online growth good online good growth. retail growth as well I, I think people were slightly disappointed with super dry i say but it's a slightly m- more mature business the kind of ones you want to look at it's foot asylum which came out today with inaugural numbers actually mm-hmm. um i know you have your suspicions but shares there uh, sorry sales there were ahead of expectations up by more than a third over christmas but they're they're a good example of someone who's got much more of an online presence than an offline presence so is this the thing is this the thing that is separating the the wheat from the chaff in the retail sector you know if you have this this kind of millstone of a big retail estate you know physical bricks and mortar estate around your neck you're going to struggle uh, and it would distract you as a as a as a retail management team from really investing where the future is which is online 
I yes, essentially. I think there's there's more to it than that, which is for instance, someone like John Lewis had very good Christmas figures. They obviously have enough of a store estate. Um but I think what John Lewis has done has been kind of smart. They're obviously in those big department store formats and there aren't millions of them. Mm. There's kind of like one in a major town. Um and that's it. And the thing that John Lewis has got absolutely right, and their Black Friday numbers really demonstrate this, is that their whole online presence, I don't know about you, but if you go online to that website, it's so easy to navigate. The click and collect is so straightforward. They've partnered with a supermarket with Waitrose, obviously, so they can have tons more distribution behind the scenes as well. And it, it's just more streamlined. Someone like Debenhams has got this aging store estate where you know their sort of placement in towns is sort of secondary placings. And they have no real sort of distribution. They've had to really build that from the ground up. Like Next is a good example, right? We're always talking about how that directory business gave them such an in for doing online business because it, it just existed already. But M&S didn't. M&S didn't. Yeah. They've been slow to catch up. Yeah, no, my, my local Debenhams is, I like Debenhams actually, is a as a shopping experience although the store is like it's very uh, are you being served it's, it's like very higgledy-piggledy you can imagine it worked really well in, uh, in the 1960s <laughs> my, my local one in Clapham Junction I have to admit like the ground floor if you just stick to the ground floor you'll be absolutely fine it's when you start going up into the other floors that it just becomes more and more soul-destroying until you get to the top floor which is a sports direct oh my god <laughs> I, have to, I, I have actually uh, you know I, I'm not afraid to admit this I have been lost in Debenhams Chelmsford several times like, actually lost in a shop yeah. It hadn't happened to me previously since I was about four. <laughs> <laughs> but the other Debenhams that's local to me in Wandsworth has has a doddle in it, which I really like as What's well. What's a doddle? So it's, you pick up stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The future. The future. Well, not if anyone knows the actual sort of machinations of doddle, which has been absolutely disastrous. But yeah. Well, there was one on uh, Cannon Street, wasn't there? It's disappeared. One on Cannon Street, one in Waterloo. They had to shut, again, about 75% of their estates. They were just, they lost so much money. Which just goes to show that the future, you know, the fu- the trend is no guarantee of success. You still have to run the business properly. You still have to run a business properly, but I think what it does show, it's not that doddle didn't have massive demand. It's just they weren't really monetizing it correctly. Mm. And... I know a lot of people who have spoken to the same thing and they're like, oh yeah, my doddle closed down too. So what that speaks to, of course, is that more and more people are ordering more and more online, want it delivered conveniently, i.e. not to their office, not to their home, somewhere on neutral territory. Um, That does need to exist, but it it needs to be profitable. Indeed. Should we quickly talk about supermarkets? You alluded to Waitrose. Um, Let's talk quickly Tesco Sainsbury. You you suggest that the uh, reaction to the Tesco numbers was was overdone. Sainsbury's had some good numbers. Morrison have had some good numbers. What's, yeah. what's, what's helping the supermarkets? Inflation. That's what's helping the supermarkets is price inflation. That's. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. The Kantar data at the beginning of this week still shows that the discounters were sort of the fastest growing in terms of market share. Um, and that but tes- they're smaller. But you they're smaller. And I personally think that the sales figures that have come out of these supermarkets has to be taken with a pinch of salt, which is that what we're talking about here is we're talking about the value of retail sales. We're not talking about volume. I'll tell you something, uh, actually... Let's turn back to Scuttlebutt Corner. Argos was doing some good stuff for, te- uh, for Sainsbury. Really was, yeah. So we, uh, we bought something from Argos. We went to pick it up in the store. We hadn't been there for a long time. Uh, and I spent £100 on alcohol, probably. <laughs> <laughs> there you but, go. You're but, a you know, cross-sell customer. Pro- 
It's a good idea then. Yeah. It's working. It's working. Well, I think you, the last time I was on this podcast, you were expressing serious uh, cynicism that that wouldn't work. So yeah, it definitely works on me. There you go. You're part of the fold. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's a good point. Like some of these supermarkets have, have done some really good things in the last sort of 18 months to try and keep up with Amazon. Um, Morrison's has joined Amazon, frankly. Um, it now sells its wares via their pantry delivery service and their fresh service. Maybe, maybe takeover? Yeah, I'd. No, they bought Whole Foods in America. They might have something over here. They did, but they spent ten point four billion pounds on Whole Foods. Yeah, what's Morrison's now? Five. If Four? that, I, I don't, don't know. know. I have to look it up. Have to look it up. But um, yeah, potentially, potentially. But Morrison's, of course, has a contract with Ocado as well, so they'd have to buy them out of that. Mm, I'm sure they wouldn't mind doing that. There you go. <laughs> anyway, so but supermarkets, do we still do we like them? Are we, uh, are we, do we think this is beginning of a longer term recovery? Or do we think inflation, the inflationary uh, food inflation environment, will will uh, kind of uh, weaken and become less benign for, for supermarkets? I mean, the big thing that's going to happen for all retailers this year is that the foreign exchange environment they've been in, which has prompted a lot of this inflationary stuff, is going to annualise out. So there's an argument to say that inflation should sort of moderate. Which could be bad news for supermarkets. Bad news for supermarkets. I think also, my big point with supermarkets as well, I think, is that price inflation masks a lot of sort of the underlying challenges or just shifts in trading patterns that they need to keep reminding themselves Mm. of, which, which is that people are shopping more often, but for fewer items at a time. Yeah. So actually, the financial sort of impact on that on a P&L statement should be null. But because of price inflation, it looks a bit better. Mm, okay. Well, my new resolution is to go back to uh, buying a veg box once a week from a local organic supplier. Good for you. So bad luck, Sainsbury's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Algie, right, before we, we're going to speak to Simon Thompson very shortly. Thank you, Harriet. Um, before we do, let's talk quickly. Tips for the year. I know you don't want to. It was, it was a terrible year in 2017. I know. But um, I, 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 I do kind of think, you know, these things happen. It's, um, if there's one thing we're... We're in good company, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yeah, the Woodford. Absolutely. <laughs> the Woodford had a bad year, we had a bad year. Hey, there you go. What did Buffett do? Um, it's Buffett. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, mo- most investors probably um, have been, you know, investing for a while will know how awful a bad year feels. But um, that they do come along and a lot of stuff went wrong for our tips of the year some of which was were things risks with that we kind of we'd seen but played out worse than we expected and others were just um you know we were slightly blindsided by we ended up with a total return of minus 2.9 percent oh, compared with 12 percent from the market and it was in and also the market itself sometimes um you get tough markets to outperform it. Well, we've had that before when, for example, we, we shied away from commodities. And commodities well, yeah, 20, back 2016, and... commodities were still falling out of bed. We just felt we can't really, um, uh, you know, we, we, we can't really um, go there. And um, they they reached the NADA in, um, I think, February or, or something, and mm. they made the market in that year. That wasn't the case um, this year. But this, year, we, um... this year you had um, a fairly good distribution in terms of... Um, Returns and it, it's just our picks did really badly on the whole. Mm. Um, it's quite—I mean, it's quite a concentrated portfolio. We we kind of hamstring ourselves by we have the the, the kind of categories. It's not yeah, real. I mean, it's we, not we, like, we, you would, if you were picking, we never we never recommend like anyone invest like this no. in in, um, in real life. <laughs> having said that, having said that though, yeah, the long term performance is still looking all right. 
Yes, yeah, so over five years, we still there's still a healthy um, amount of outperformance. So it's um, a 81.2% cumulative over five years versus 59% from the market. Or when I try and take out costs, it goes down to about 72%. If you factor in a kind of you know notional cost for reshuffling and stuff, yeah. And um, I mean, I, I suppose picking picking things out actually. Well, actually, you know, talking about retail, we had Ted Baker in there, which is one of the stocks which didn't um, do something it, horrible. Um, but it didn't and, fly either. That it didn't was... fly. Although after um, our kind of year officially ended, it came out with its trading update, and I think it put on eight percent on the back of that. So <laughs> that was rather galling on the. Well, oh, <laughs> you know, it happens, ways, doesn't it? Oh, but only only from a presentational point. Of oh view. my goodness, my my kids—they're all over Ted Baker. That's all yeah, they wanted well, this I mean, Christmas. It's, it's, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting talking about um, all, all the retailers because I mean, they're really strong brands too. Um, you know, the new ones, Jules and um, and yeah, Hotel um, Chocolat. I think, um, which is, I mean, obviously, it's. A sl- <laughs> You can never say it normally. I can't say it. I can't say jewels either. Jewels. Jewels. Such an odd one. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just want to revert to a French accent. Jewels. Jewels. They do have a slightly... Um, jewels isn't French. I know that. Just say the S. Just say the S. I'm, I'm well trained. Okay. But then we had ones like Inmarsat, which is, uh, I think that was just, that. It, it, was, it, it was the wrong point in the cycle. We were queasy about that Although, from the off. Um, we we well there was there was suddenly rumours surfaced soon after we'd made the mm. tip that they were starting to brief people and also I think there's just too too much capacity um, still in that industry so um, you know we 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 were too early basically with that tip too did, early in did the we, cycle did we have anything to to celebrate from the tips of the year we must have had one or two good uh, we, our, our PS our recovery tip of the year um, that performed as we expected there was a um a good valuation argument there and margin recovery they've done a lot of work it all played through aviva performed we the company did well the shares um delivered 8.4 percent so even that's actually below the market it's below the market yeah but um there wasn't anything to feel that disappointed about from the company's actual performance they've upgraded all their targets again at the end of the year and the shares aren't expensive they've got a good yield um, Ted Baker, that that did fine. It didn't do anything spectacular, but um, it performed as we'd hoped. But then um, I think all of the others, um, there there were you know there there were issues. Um, Green Core, which we'd backed on the back of a takeover that had done. In the I like state. that business. Well, it's a very interesting business. A great market, food to go. It's you know it's it's the place for you know for growth in the food industry. Big expansion in the US as well, which is what the acquisition was. Yes, exactly. And but the but then that acquisition is always the integration risk, as yeah. they call it, is always an issue. Did we make? And a, sometimes it works. Did we make <laughs> okay, a classic mistake? One. You know, you, the US is the graveyard of UK companies. Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, and, and, and also, I mean that that's the what's crept into thinking during the year because they've had these. Um, various issues with this acquisition or various they kind of it's like small small bits of bad news but you get enough of them they add up to um some real worries and it's had um downgrades off the back of that i mean things seem like they may be leveling out now and also some of the scares seem, may may not actually be substantiated but um so that didn't go well imperial brands that looked great at the beginning of the year. Then, um, and, and also, um, I mean, this is almost um, a danger sign when you think, well, the regular re- regulatory outlook isn't, um, you know, doesn't look that bad. There aren't really any cloud, you know, clouds on the horizon. Although, obviously, if a company makes a product which is highly addictive and kills people, then you should always expect some regulation. So the FDA came out with them. Um, 
you know, uh, something which really upset the industry. Um, and, which and we couldn't have foreseen. We couldn't all. have foreseen. I mean, but you could always say, you know, listen, these companies, they're not nice businesses, really, when you get down to it. And so you should expect them to always face kind of regulatory yeah. surprises. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, they, the, the moral hazard. Kind of yeah. Okay. So, so lesson learned, steer clear of moral hazard. <laughs> um, I mean, what other and lessons? Also, actually, I think interestingly, there, there was one um, narrative that is, is developing around... Um, tobacco is actually this is an industry being disrupted you think of people being disrupted by online threats but the whole the new forms of smoking so heating um tobacco but but vaping as they call you know it's um this potentially is like incredibly low margin and with very few barriers to entry compared with what um you know traditional big tobacco companies have enjoyed for you know forever i've got two vape stores in my history Oh, they're everywhere. There's only about hundred jobs, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, the, and also the, the the brands aren't Marlboro and, um, and Lucky Strike or whatever. You know, whatever these uh, you know the big tobacco. Although brands. they are getting involved, well, they're starting to. But I mean, what 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 kind of money will they be be able to make on those sales? There's actually there's a great blog that um, Schroders do, which I'm I'm ad libbing a lot of this from, which is called the Valley Perspective, and there's an excellent um, piece on big tobacco. There, just saying, you know, this is this is um, no longer a set to the value investors because assen- essentially their their markets, you know, under some serious threat. Interesting. Well, that's, that's enough about the uh, the two thousand and seventeen well, tips I, I, of the year. Oh, there, you don't please, Alex. You there's, don't. There's, you? there's one I think um, <laughs> is worth mentioning. Also, Spare me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, close the window. <laughs> So um, actually, you wouldn't you wouldn't get far if you jump from. Yeah, we're on the ground floor. We're on the ground floor, yeah. Um, but Merck, um, actually, that a lot of what we had hoped would happen with Merck. I mean, they did have a cyber attack, which meant they missed sales targets, which we couldn't have foreseen. But actually, the whole the, the way um, healthcare um, reform did happen or didn't happen, actually, um, worked out as we we're hoping it may do. That, that a lot of the worry around that would reduce, which halfway through the year it seemed that it had. But um, as Megan's written in this week's magazine, um, the anxiety about pricing has actually actually stepped up about halfway through the year. And, um, and it, you know, it, make, it makes the set to look interesting, but there are definitely kind of threats in there. But, um, yeah, Merck suffered, um, you know, definitely from that, you know, increased anxiety, although it's been doing amazing um, things with the results from its um, uh, uh, cancer immune no therapy drug yeah yeah no th- th- as you say there's an interesting piece from megan this week about the prospects for uh for uk big pharma mm-hmm. um which is worth a read um i mean let's let's turn to a slightly more positive story which is our tips of the week yeah they yes. beat the market they yeah. you would have thought that's much harder to do because we do so so many yes yeah no i mean they they generally um uh i mean i i don't actually have the numbers but i mean you know definitely last year the year before the um the and this and this year just gone the buy tips beat the mar- the market by um, a noteworthy margin for the because uh, we've got we do so many um, buy tips each year that you have this statistical phenomenon which is called reversion to the mean where the more recommendations you make the more you expect them to be average and um, and the tips of the week aren't average they're they're above average. Go on, Harriet. Tell us what the best tip of the week was. One of mine, Games Workshop. Well done. Three years out of four, just yep. saying. Did they come out with some numbers this week? They did. They had results this week. They're in the results section. They are indeed. That's right. I knew uh, I'd seen, I knew I'd seen them somewhere. Storming first half 
as as expected. But I did actually take them off. I thought enough's enough. You can hold on to them if you want to, but they're now actually looking kind of expensive. And the upgrade kind of momentum is starting to taper off a little bit. So I think people are just, you know, that recovery is kind of mm. played out. Maybe. Or maybe the world is turning geek. <laughs> mm. Warhammer. Warhammer. Yeah. Should we uh should we talk to Simon? Let's talk to Simon. Thank you, Algie, by the way. Thank you. Onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards, yeah. Onwards Interesting year this year, yeah. 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 Right, let's talk to Simon. Simon, are you there? I, I'm definitely here, John. All all misty on the uh, Kent coast at the moment. Oh, misty on the thing. Misty on the Kent coast. Sounds like the setting of an Agatha Christie novel. So <laughs> <laughs> how you been, Simon? Um, I'm good. W- working hard on the bargain shares, you'll be pleased to know. Um, I, I've done five out of the ten for the 2018 portfolio, trying to replicate the success of the 2017 one, which is now up 30% against the market, which is only up 11%. I was going to so. say, we've just, we've just been talking about our tips of the year, which were not great in 2017. So the good news is welcome. Um, it's, it's not just the 2017 portfolio. The uh, 2016 one, I was looking at that because I'm doing some... Uh, trading updates for my column on Monday the 15th. I'm covering seven uh, companies for that one. But um, the uh, 2016 portfolio is now at 40%, which is about 10% more than the market. So, uh, yes, it's all good. Yeah, good. Well, let's let's not uh, let's not uh, jump out, uh, uh, jump the gun here, because we've still got a couple of weeks to go, haven't we, before we uh, we kind of officially close that out? Um, I think it's three weeks, actually, John. It's uh, the... 1st of February um, is, is when we're going to release the, um, the 2018 version. So, uh, How exciting. Um, but it, it looks good. It looks good at the moment. Indeed, indeed. What are you going to talk about this week, Simon? Um, I covered four companies for the column uh, this week. Interestingly, Ramsden Holdings, it's Middle, Middlesbrough-based. It floated on the AIM market last June. Put readers in at about 132. It's it's up about 50% since then. Whilst I was on my sabbatical in um, December, they had um, results, which were just absolutely fantastic. Um, pre-tax profit for the half-year surge, two-thirds. Every single part of the business was um, growing really well. Um, they've got a foreign currency arm, which exchanged £320 million worth of currency with over half a million customers. They've got a 3% market share. The market is about £13 billion for that. M&S, you know, it's a dominant player there, TravelX, etc. Um, so this is re- retail currency exchange? Re- retail, but they, um, in areas that they um, have got a high street presence, they've got 127 shops. Um, they've got about 10 to 12% of the market. And part of the reason for that is the really competitive um, um, offering that they uh, they make. That, 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 and, uh, that's quite interesting. I mean, if you uh, if you are lucky enough to work in in uh, the city of London, you'll see you'll see brokers around here, currency brokers. I n- I never buy my currency from from any of the high street banks or any of the there's a post office or M and S because we have we have these little broking shops in London where you just get so much better rates. And it's it's got, I, I did wonder, you know, why has this not been rolled out nationally? It has, from the sound of things. Well, they have. So, I mean, this company is doing 400 to 500 million pounds worth of currency exchange out of a market worth 13 billion. Um, it's making a gross profit in the last six month period of about seven and a half million pounds from those half a million customers. So it's a decent margin it makes. But I mean, that's one part of the business. That's basically half the business. Um, it's got a small pawnbroking operation. It's got 33,000 clients, a pawn book of about six million pounds. So average loan only 190 pounds or so. Um, 
it collects about 85% of those loans. They're generally over about a five-month period. The interest rate is horrible. It's 8.8% a month, but, you know, that's pawnbroking for you. Um, but that, that's doing really well because the gold price has done well in sterling terms. You know, the, the dollar price has, you know, increased quite a lot over the last few months. But in sterling terms, it's done well as well. So, so that side of the business is doing doing good. It's got these 127 shops that sell second-hand jewellery and watches, and it's got a website operation. I mean, the bottom line is that Liberum Capital, who's the broker that's actually floated the company, have upgraded about three times since actually floated um, about a year ago. And based on the latest forecasts um, of about 16 pence earnings for the 12 months to end March, the stock is actually about 12 times earnings. But what makes this even more interesting, because I published this article on Monday this week and you know said, okay, the stock price at the time was about 180. I've upgraded my target price to 210, um, decent 3.5% dividend yield, etc. Uh, but what makes it interesting is that since I actually published that article, H&T, which is the larger pawnbroker, has actually issued their uh, trading updates. And I've been talking to a few brokers in the last hour or so, and uh, subsequent to that, they're, they're looking to actually upgrade their earnings forecast for H&T. And this is solely based on what happened in December. So this comes after Ramsden actually reported its results. But they're looking to upgrade their forecast for H&T by about 5 to 10%. Um, so what, what I'm saying now is that although I said target price £2.10 for Ramsden, it wouldn't surprise me one bit for this company to come out with another earnings beat when it actually reports its results. Interesting, interesting. Especially interesting that uh, pawnbroking seems to be taken off. Perhaps a sign that the uh, you know the consumer environment is getting a bit tougher, eh? Spending um, power is drying up. Well, it also points to perhaps a stabilisation of the market. There was an oversupply of pawnbrokers about five or six years ago. Um, many of those actually went out of business and... You know, the larger players um, have been buying up some of the smaller ones. Um, so it, it possibly also points to stability in the market. Interesting. Okay, uh, what, what else have you written about this week, Simon? Um, there's another interesting one that I think is offering a decent repeat buying opportunity. It's called Chromec. We've talked about this one before. It's search field based. It has some really smart radiation detection technology. Um, it's developed a dirty bomb detector. It was... Um, 10 times faster, is 10 times faster at detecting gamma and neutron radiation than anything else um, on the market for conventional detectors. It's been tested. Um, when Donald Trump uh, came across to Europe last um, last summer, um, it was actually Chromex dirty bomb detectors that actually protected him. Um, the New Jersey Port Authority in New York are using them. Um, it's been field tested by the U.S. authorities in Washington, or it has been. Uh, The great hope is that the U.S. government have got this $8.2 billion 10-year program um, for um, the U.S. US Defense Department. And um, the great hope is that they'll actually roll out this technology across 23 cities in the U.S. Um, Each contract alone, I've talked to the chief executive and finance director on this, um, each contract alone could be worth $10 million to the company. What makes Chromic interesting, it's not a one-trick pony. It's got, it's got other technology, radiation detection technology that's used in um, um, medical imaging, you know, osteoporosis in patients to try and actually 
find, uh, diagnose, strengthen health of bones. You know, it's got a wide range of applications. But what makes this company interesting right now is that, um, and I've talked to brokers at length over this and analysts, um, that for the financial year to end April, it should break even on a cash profit basis. It's got about 13, 14 million pounds cash in the bank. Um, but having hit this inflection point, its cash profit margin is going to be about 40% above that. Um, so you're going to see an increase in the amount of profit actually dropping through to the bottom line as soon as it hits this inflection point. And I've gone through the order book that it had at the end of the first half and did a build for the second half. And I think it's high probability it's actually going to hit that break-even point. Um, and that doesn't include anything for these U.S. contracts. Um, any one of those contracts will be transformational given the amount of profit it actually makes on uh, on the business's earnings. So. I mean, slightly terrifying that we uh, that we need dirty bomb detectors, but uh, but there you go. What- well, it's, it's, it's a sign of the times, John. You know, you you've, you've got to accept it, and I'd rather have governments actually spending this money on this technology. So I'm actually safe when I go to an airport and go through scanners and things like that. And I just think, given the risk of terrorism now, that an increasing number of governments across the world are going to be using this. And, you know, it's ideally placed. No, it's, it's fascinating. Fascinating story. Definitely worth a look. Um, before I leave you to uh, to answer your phone there, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was probably yet another analyst of broker on the phone, John. I'm trying, I'm trying to multitask, but I'm, I'm a man, so I can only do one thing at once. Oh, so. well, you know. Before I let you, uh, let you go, um, let's quickly talk about your house builder trade, which you wrote about last week. Um, I mean, I'm interested in this because so far this year, the house builders have been suffering. Um, not the small small ones. I put the readers into Inland, uh, Telford Homes, um, Henry Boot, Urban and Civic. Um, all of those are up. Um, the larger ones are down about one, 1.2% on average. I updated it this morning. So, um, you know, it's nothing, John. You know, it's early days. Um, you know, the trading statements that Simon came out with, Taylor Wimpy, Barrett's, they're all positive. Um, just wait for the results. The results will be coming out in about four or five weeks' time, and you know that'll be the kicker. I think. Yeah, because so, I mean uh, the trading the trading statements we we have seen look okay. Oh no, there's nothing wrong with the trading statements. You know, as expected. Um, I mean, of course, the sector's coming off some pretty hefty rises in 2017. Some of the stocks were up 50 percent. Yeah, I mean but, Bloomberg. Uh, I've got I've got a Bloomberg story in front of me. They're describing it as a house. Well, they home builder tells you tells you what country they're from. Home builder, house builder, buyer fatigue. I mean, is that what we're seeing right now? Buyer buyer fatigue in terms of the shares. I mean. Y- you had a pause in the autumn, uh, which I, I mentioned in the article. So, you know, the stocks from late October gave back some of the gains and have been trading, you know, sideways, some of them since then. Um, I think people are waiting to see the financial results, to be honest. I, and that's, that's always the case, that when the financial results are published, it generally does give the stocks a kick because um, people focus on you know, the health of the balance sheets, most of these companies, virtually all of them, have got the 5350 house builders, have got net cash positions and very strong ones too. They've got very long land banks. It's more a case of your outlook on house prices, given the gearing effect of the price of land and the house, house price itself. Are, are you worried um, at all about the political risks in this sector? I mean, there, there have been, you know, several fairly high-profile 
political announcements around the house building sector, I, I presume? No, not really, because we, we always have this. But the, the bottom line is that we're producing, in terms of outputs, a fraction of the total output we need to have equilibrium in the market. You can't just increase output overnight. We don't have the skills to do so, no matter what the politicians say. We need, you know, we need builders, we need carpenters, we need bricklayers, and there's a finite number of skilled people to actually do, you know, to increase output dramatically. And, you know, every single other report into the house building sector has actually come in favour with the sector itself. But they're not actually, you know, sitting on land indefinitely. They're actually building at an increased capacity. And they have been through the last seven, eight, nine years uh, since we came out of the, um, the recession. Um, it's, it's, it's more, you know, if the government, to be honest, wants to build more houses, then they've got some of the cheapest borrowing costs on record. Um, if they want to actually set up a house building arm themselves, they could do it if it's that easy. Um, I, I, I'm really unconcerned about it. And as I said, you know, I, I focus on the finances and, you know, some of these stocks are trading on single digits earnings multiples, unless you actually feel that the um, house prices are going to absolutely plummet. And outside London in the southeast, those areas didn't actually have the boom that the southeast and London had. So um, the multiples that you see people actually being forced to pay in London, the southeast, as, you know, multiple of their earnings, is nothing like that outside London. Whereas affordability in terms of interest rates and fixed interest rate mortgages, it's just the same. Um, so, you know, in terms of the dynamics actually supporting the market, it's actually quite positive. Mm. Okay, interesting. No, good. So I guess I know, the I'm, I'm long, I'm long. I oh, know, no, you know, I wouldn't tell readers, you know, one week later, look, I said, you know, Tuesday last week, buy the house builders, the fifty three fifty is down 1%, which is nothing. Um, I, I'm not going to say get out. I mean, that, that'd be crazy. I mean, I... I you know, there's nothing, as far as I'm concerned, nothing's changed. No, absolutely. But, Simon, reassurance is always welcome. Always welcome. It's very easy to get the jitters in the uh, in the stock markets at the moment. Many people do, John, but um, I, I still think the stock market has a bit more to run. So, and as soon as I change that view, then, you know, I won't be recommending trades like this. Well, let's hope you don't change that view in the week ahead. And uh, we'll, we'll be back next week, Simon. We'll, uh, we'll chat Great. again. Great to talk Thanks, to you. Thanks, Simon. See you later. Okay. Cheers. And I guess that kind of rounds up what we're, uh, we're going to talk about today. I mean, it's not, it's not a huge magazine this week, but there's lots in it, actually. And I guess the, the retail stuff is that's all going to be coming out next week. But uh, The bulk of it will be next week, yeah. You can get online and those stories will be coming through as the, uh, as the week progresses. So, yeah, uh, definitely. Worth keeping an eye on the website. As I say, lots, lots of other stuff in the magazine this week. We've got John Barron's first column of the year, which I know you were uh, eyeing eagerly. Yeah, Algie? Oh, yeah. I'm, I always like reading John Barron's column. Absolutely. Uh, Chris Dillo has written the cover feature. In fact, he's written several features this week. And Chris is talking about uh, some basically some, some really kind of simple portfolio rules to help you avoid some classic mistakes that, that, that end up costing you money. A theme that's actually repeated in the money section as well. They'll be no doubt talking about that on their own podcast uh, tomorrow. Yes, all the usual tips, all the usual comments, some results cranking up again. Um, thank you all for listening. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. It's been a while. I hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, pick up the magazine and all good news agents, portfolio secrets, or get online and subscribe. Speak soon.